All right. Well, thanks for bearing with me there on the first part. Uh, I sit in those pews day after day, and I always forget the order, though, when I'm up here and supposed to be directing us through it. So I made notes, but I still stumbled through it. So I appreciate uh, the patience there. So uh, before I get started in my actual message, I'd like to explore a couple of things that have led me up here today to speak to you all again. Um, so as many of you know, before we took our little summer break, uh, we were going through Mark Dever's book, uh, nine marks of a healthy church, uh, in our Sunday night Bible study. A couple of the chapters so far stood out to me personally, um, and convicted me of some of my own shortcomings, um, mainly as an elder of this church. Uh, The first chapter was the first one that stuck out to me, and that chapter was all about expositional preaching. So expository means to explain or describe something, so expositional preaching is all about picking a biblical text and then going through it and explaining the meanings and kind of piecing everything together. Whereas, in contrast to that, there's topical, which the book talks about is not a bad thing, but it can be a slippery slope because what people often do is they find biblical texts to reinforce their already um, assumed topic. And that, therefore, that can, that can get a little muddy and can, can cause some issues. So... As we're reading that, I couldn't help but notice that actually both times that I got up here to speak to you all, I did topical messages and did just that, had a topic in mind and found scripture to support that topic. So I decided that the next time I got an opportunity, I would try my hand at something more expositional. Uh, So the next chapter that I'd like to uh, point out was chapter 7, and it was all about biblical church leadership. In that chapter, the author discusses many of the different roles and jobs that elders within the church are called to do. One of those main roles is as a teacher. And as an elder of this church, I'm called to take part in the teaching of the congregation. Uh, Now, to be quite honest, I've never considered myself much of a teacher. Uh, There's a couple reasons for that. Uh, The first one is I don't really have the patience for it. Um, You can ask my children when we sit down and I try to show them something. If they don't pick up on it right away, I I lose it. I don't know what it is about me, but there's something inside me that thinks if I can understand it, everyone else should. And if they don't, then it's their fault. But anyways, in all seriousness, that is a, you know, a biblical call four elders that I, in good conscience, can't ignore. So that's part, again, of what brings me up here today. So with all that being said, since Scott has gone for the next three weeks, Brady and myself have decided that we would uh, try our hand at some expositional preaching and uh, put together a short series of sermons about a text in the New Testament that is both brief enough to cover in three weeks, uh, but also relatively lesser known uh, than some of maybe the other books of the New Testament. Um, So before I start to dig in to the text, you can see from my slide, 
uh, that we chose the epistle of Jude. So, um, well, hold on just a second. First, again, bear with me, new to this. Uh, First, I just want to say a couple things about speaking to you all um, that I want to acknowledge. Um, Something that I've noticed both this time and the other times I got a chance to do this is um, just the the great blessings that I get from this um, are unexpected. Uh, One of those blessings is the amount of respect that I gain for Scott and other preachers uh, who do this week in and week out. It's actually very hard uh, to come up here, not only come up here and speak, but also to put the time in to study the scripture and put together a message and all of that. Um, I'd imagine even with practice, it still takes a tremendous amount of time and effort. So um, again, I just, I, I think that's very impressive and I, I gain a lot of respect for them and a lot of respect for the burden that as pastors that they carry. Um, the other blessing I receive is just the work of doing it. Um, putting together a message requires you to dig into the text, especially I've found with this uh, expositional type of preaching uh, that oftentimes in my personal Bible study, uh, I don't get into that detail. I can uh, tend to stay pretty surface level, whether it's due to lack of time or effort or you know all the other things that, that get in the way on a day-in and day-out basis. So, anyways, I'm thankful for the opportunity to be able to dig in, um, and I'm thankful to you all for not, you know, turning and running whenever you find out that I'm going to be here. Uh, So, I appreciate that. I appreciate the opportunity to be up here, and also I would recommend if anyone ever gets the opportunity, uh, you'll probably be like me and not want to do it at first, and, uh, but I think if you did, if you pushed yourself Uh, you would find the blessings uh, are there just as I have. So with that, let's get started on Jude here. Um, So as I mentioned, this is the book that uh, Brady and I have chosen to to speak about for the next three weeks. Um, Now I don't know if many of you were like me, but if you'd asked me at some point uh, where Jude was in the Bible, i probably don't know that I would have been able to tell you if it was a New or Old Testament. Um, But it is. It's in the New Testament. It is one chapter long. And um, so if you all are anything like me and and don't know as much about this epistle as maybe some of the other more well-known ones, I thought I'd give you a little bit of history uh, about both the author and the book just to kind of set the groundwork for it. So... Like many of the epistles in the New Testament, the name of this book is borrowed from the name of the author. Uh, Most theologians believe that the author's name was actually Judas, which is commonly translated to Jude in English. Um, Now, if you remember, there were two apostles named Judas. Obviously, we know that what happened to Judas Iscariot, and therefore we know he was definitely not the author of, uh, of this epistle. But more interestingly... It's actually believed that the other apostle, Jude, was not the author either. Uh, We know this because in Luke 6.16, the other Judas is introduced as the son of James, or in a more direct translation as Jude of James, which was a common way back in that time of identifying someone as the son of another. Now, in Jude 1.1, you'll see here in a minute, uh, 
the author introduces himself as the brother of James. So that leads most, not everybody, but most to believe that the James they're speaking of is the author of the book of James, or the epistle of James, and also the half-brother of Jesus. This is further verified in Matthew 13.55 where it says when speaking of Jesus, um, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? So, since most believe the author of James was in fact Jesus' half-brother, then the author of the book of Jude, who, is, who introduces himself as the brother of James, is also another of Jesus' half-brothers. Now, in my estimation, that makes him a pretty good source, and uh, I'm ashamed to say how little I knew about this um, going into all of this. So now, a couple more interesting things about Jude and the rest of Jesus' brothers, including James, is that none of them were actually followers of Jesus during his life, which isn't too hard to believe. Uh, I can tell you, I grew up with two brothers, and uh, it would take a lot more than a few healings and turning water and wine uh, for me to start worshiping them. So, uh, but in all seriousness, uh, it wasn't until after the death and resurrection of Jesus that his brothers were converted and uh, became followers of, of his. Um, uh, we even have reason to believe that at least two of them did missionary work. And that's because in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, Paul spent some time talking about himself and Barnabas and their work. And in 1 Corinthians 9, 5 says, uh, Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Um, now this comparison between the rules for Barnabas and Paul and the brothers of the Lord leads theologians to believe that at least two of them uh, were missionaries like Paul and Barnabas. Now given that two of them have now been given credit for writing epistles, I think it's pretty uh, logical to, um, to think that it was probably Jude and James at the very least. So the last piece of historical information I have for you here is uh, the book of Jude was believed to have been written between 60 and 80 A.D. Uh, this is due to the similarities between some of the topics spoken about uh, in Jude and in those in 1 Peter. Um, it, pretty much, it is pretty much agreed upon that 1 Peter was written sometime in the early 60s A.D., and uh, that is because it is believed that Peter was martyred in the mid-60s A.D. around the same time as Paul. Also, because of who Peter was and the leadership uh, structure of the early church, it is believed that most likely Jude would have taken and borrowed from Peter as opposed to the other way around, which is why most people believe that this epistle was written after 1 Peter which is how we get the, um, the uh, estimated uh, date of authorship. Uh, so, with that, now that we know a little bit about the author and the timing of when it was written, let's get into the text itself. So, ah, there we go. So, uh, Jude 1, 1 through 4 
Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, yes, okay, sorry. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. All right. So, let's look at the beginning of the first verse. Jude starts off his letter with an introduction. Uh, It's worth noting that the first thing he identifies with is that he is a bondservant of Jesus Christ, which is a beautiful picture of a life lived in the proper context. Uh, we as Christians are called to put our love of our love and devotion of Jesus uh, before all other aspects of our lives, um, as it says in Matthew six thirty three. But seek first the kingdom of God, or seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. We are to first seek God's kingdom, and then all the other things in our life are to take their proper place after. Uh, Many people today would probably introduce themselves uh, by saying, I'm a father, I'm a husband, or whatever their career is. Um, But Jude's words remind us that the first thing that we should identify with is that we are followers of Jesus. Um, None of those other things are bad, but they need to have their proper place. So the next part of verse 1, Jude identifies himself as the brother of James, which I mentioned is why we know that he was most likely the half-brother of Jesus and not Jude the Apostle. I also think it is interesting interesting that he obviously knowingly leaves out that direct connection with Jesus. Uh, I have to think that even back in the first century, um, people were prone to name drop And what bigger name drop is there than to say that you're the brother of Jesus? Um, However, Jude chooses not to do this, and so did James, for that matter. Uh, I feel that by doing this, they're making a conscious effort to not put themselves on an equal playing field with Jesus. Um, The reference, to reference that familiar relationship, I believe, would in a lot of ways degrade who Jesus was and is. He isn't simply a person who can be referenced in simple earthly terms. He is the Son of God who came to earth as man and died as punishment for our sins. He was also resurrected and now sits at the right hand of God. I feel that the fact that he didn't reference any familial ties um, identified himself and instead identified himself as a bondservant shows that he clearly feels a reverence Um, for Jesus that would only be cheapened by referencing him in those earthly terms. Uh, The final part of verse 1, he addresses the readers of the letter. He doesn't give any details. 
specifically about uh, these readers, uh, aside from saying that they are believers. Uh, he does this in a very meaningful way by referencing to these people or referring to these people as called, which is the reference to the sovereignty of God. These are not people who chose to follow Jesus, but these are people who God called um, to that purpose in the beginning of time. Similar to how Paul refers to this in Romans 8.28, God, call, God causes all things to work for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Um, so, okay. so the next phrase is also interesting because it quite perfectly lays out the framework of our salvation. As he says, we are beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Some think that a better translation is kept by Jesus Christ, which I think is a better way to look at it because I think it makes it all kind of flow together a little better. So this indicates that we are beloved by God and, uh, and that this fact is kept by or guarded by Jesus. He is the key and guardian of our relationship with God and our salvation. I also think you can see a picture of the Trinity in these statements, if you look at it like we are called by the Holy Spirit, beloved by God the Father, and kept by Jesus. It is so comforting to see the wholeness of the Trinity expressed in the relationship to the Christian life. And all that from a seemingly simple line of a letter. Sometimes I'm amazed by the richness and depth of God's word so with that, we will move on to verse 2. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Now in verse 2, Jude indicates a closeness with his readers. He has a strong feeling towards them. He wishes mercy, peace, and love on them. These are obviously people who he feels a strong kinship to and wants the best for. This is a great picture of loving others as yourself. Um, it is also a little bit of foreshadowing, I think, about the severity and the seriousness of what he's going to be addressing in, these le in this letter. In the onset, he is wishing mercy on them because he knows that what he is about to discuss is of the utmost importance and something that, should be, that cannot be delayed. And only through God's mercy will they succeed uh, in overcoming it. Now in verse 3, uh, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Verse 3 is where we start to find out the purpose of Jude's letter. Initially, Jude has been intending to write to them regarding their shared salvation, but instead felt led to write about something else. The reference to being led would be a reference to the Holy Spirit within him leading him to change his original intentions. Uh, so this tells us that there's some urgency in this message that Jude plans to... Um, oh, so there's... Uh, yeah, sorry, bear with me here. Uh, so Jude goes on then to implore the readers, contend earnestly for the faith. Faith in this context is not simply the belief in God. 
Um, this reference is more about the doctrine of the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus, um, which is the foundation on which the early church and our church today is built on. So what he is saying is that it's of the utmost importance that the readers stand up and defend the foundational doctrine of the church uh, from people that seek to pervert or destroy it. Uh, this is not a call to passivity, but a call to action. Now in verse 4, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So there's a lot going on here in verse 4. Um, so let's break it down into smaller digestible parts. So, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Jude is warning the readers um, that the ones he's talking about have already infiltrated the church. This isn't a warning about some threat that could be coming along the way um, down the future. It's already occurring. And again, we get that urgency. So next, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. So here, I think, is the first reference to themes that uh, you'll recognize out of the Old Testament. Um, he does this many times throughout his letter, and you'll see that as Brady and I continue to work our way through it. Um, in this, Jude is saying that people were brought up for the purpose of sin and condemnation to glorify God. Who from the Old Testament does that sound like? It sounds just like Pharaoh out of Exodus, right? So Exodus 9, 12, And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So similar to how God ordained Pharaoh to disobey his commands to show his glory, Jude is also saying that he has also brought these others up to accomplish a similar purpose. Uh, another example of this from the New Testament would be someone who shares the same name as the author, Judas, who obviously betrayed Jesus. Um, so now we go to ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into licentiousness. Uh, and now we start to see a specific explanation of what these, at least part of what these people are doing. Uh, firstly, they are taking the concept of grace and perverting it in a justification of living sinful lives. Um, so you may remember in Romans 6.15 that Paul warns about this exact thing. Um, he says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? May it never be. The belief is that people were teaching uh, that sinful desires and deeds were acceptable because as Christians we are covered by God's grace through the blood of Jesus. Which leads us to the end of verse 15. Or sorry, to the end of verse 4. And deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Are we up there? Yes, okay. Okay, and so here Jude is pointing out the obvious contradiction here, right? Um, in the way these people are teaching and living, although they claim to be believers of Christ, uh, their actions, by their actions, you can see where their hearts truly are. In embracing their sin 
and justifying it with grace, they are in fact denying the teachings of Christ and therefore his legitimacy. You can see in Titus 1.16, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. So, to recap here, the end of verse 4, I like the way one of the commentaries I found broke this down into kind of four simple bullet points. Uh, The first one is God knew all along that they were coming and they will not triumph but be judged instead. Uh, They live ungodly lives. They subverted the teaching of God's grace using it to justify a life of sin. And they denied Jesus Christ as master and Lord. They probably did not deny Jesus' deity or humanity but denied Uh, the Lord by the way they lived their lives as mentioned in the Titus passage um, by their licentious lives and just to let you all know in case you're like me and don't know what licentious means it means promiscuous and unprincipled usually referring to sexual matters so um, now we'll move on to uh, okay now that we've walked through the first four verses introduction there Um, I think we can see some of the underlying themes and I believe the number one is the urgency that he's writing with. In just four short verses, Jude introduced himself briefly, then jumped right into why he was writing. As mentioned before, um, the topic he is discussing are very important to him and he feels he cannot delay in sending this to his readers. Now, I would argue that as much as there was urgency for Jude to write this 2,000 years ago, that there's just as much urgency for us today to take this same message to heart. Um, The Word of God seems to be under attack today as fiercely, if not more fiercely, than it ever has been. Society has done a very effective job of convincing Christians and the church that we should conform with them, or else we are outdated, judgmental, or even bigoted. To prove my point, uh, that the world has influenced many Christian beliefs, uh, I looked up some statistics that I thought were, were, were pretty shocking uh, examples of this. Um, the first one is that there was a survey conducted by the BBC back in 2017 where they were asked if they asked people if they believed in the resurrection of Jesus. And nearly 25% of people who claimed to be Christians said that they did not. Uh, I would ask how someone can claim to be a Christian and deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but that is what they found. So, to add to that, there was another survey. Uh, from 2020 conducted by Lifeway Research uh, that found that 30% of evangelicals believe that Jesus was a good teacher but not God. To me, that's just unfathomable. If Jesus was not the Son of God, then he wasn't resurrected, then basically you say that the gospel is all lies and we should just throw it all out. I mean, if you believe such a large part of the Bible is a lie, how can you devote your life to a religion 
that bases its foundation on the belief that the Bible is inspired by God and infallible. Now, I could continue to give you more ridiculous studies uh, showing how the secular world has influenced the church, but I think, uh, I think those two being so foundational prove my point pretty well. Now, I will be the first to say that, uh, that this is a difficult task, um, and I definitely do not have all the answers. Um, I do not know exactly how we as Christians are to live in this world and um, love our neighbors as we're called to do while hating the sins that seem to be all around us, common and even celebrated in a lot of cases. Um, The one thing I do know is that the Bible is infallible and that is kind of an all or nothing proposition. So either it is true or none of it is, and so that's where we need to start. Now getting back to the introduction of Jude's letter, and this is probably my favorite part about reading scripture today, and it is how it is alive. I mean, nothing else that was written 2,000 years ago can be as applicable today as the Bible is. Um, Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So that is why I think Jude's warning is as much to us today as it was to his original readers all those centuries ago. Look around, and I don't think you will find it very hard to find people who meet those exact descriptions that he laid out in his letter. Uh, Those people have snuck in unnoticed and have begun teaching false doctrines that seek to destroy all that we hold sacred. So I think... We should all leave here today with an affirmed commitment to do exactly what God, sorry, exactly what Jude has said and contend earnestly for the faith and not to sit passively by and let the world dictate how we as believers are to live our lives. We should not lean on the words and opinions of others, but on the word of God. In order to do this, we must be willing to have the discipline to spend the time studying the Word so that we can be aware when things come along that do not align with it. The major difference between us and the original readers, and this should be comforting to many, is that we have God's Word. We have our Bible. It is at our fingertips 24-7. But also, therefore, what excuse do we have? Um, If we allow ourselves to be deceived by others all because we were not diligent and disciplined enough to read our Bibles then again we really don't have an excuse so on that I'd like to close with one final scripture and that's Proverbs 4 20 through 27 and it says my son give attention to my words incline your ear to my sayings do not let them depart from your sight Keep them in the midst of your heart. For they are life to those who find them and health to all their body. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put devious speech far from you. Let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. 
Watch the path of your feet, and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. And with that, I will close us, and I will bless the food here, and then we'll have a final praise song, and we'll go over there and eat. Heavenly Father, I thank you for allowing me this opportunity to be up here and talk to this congregation, Lord. I, uh, I pray that uh, you would just take these words and that you would write them on our hearts, Lord, that you would fill us with the courage um, to, to follow these commands, Lord, and to fight and contend for our faith um, in a society that seems to be attacking it. Uh, on a daily basis, Lord. And Lord, I just pray that um, as we leave here that we would just keep this in mind, Lord. And I pray that you would be with Brady and myself as we continue through this uh, short series, Lord. We pray that um, that it would be fruitful for those who hear it, Lord, and, and also for us as well. And I just pray that uh, you would be with us as we go over and enjoy our lunch, Lord. I pray that uh, there would be fruitful fellowship, and I pray that you would bless the food um, to the nourishment and strength of our bodies. In Jesus' name, amen.